It's June 12, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we'll be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Pia Arma from High Beam to tell us about the upcoming Transitions and Growth Workshop. Finally, we'll learn about the University of Hawaii's Economic Research Organization, or UHERO, and how it's building a data dashboard to help the community better understand the many facets of the local economy. Have your questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet, but first the headlines. Well, researchers at the University of Hawaii announced this week that they have found boron in a meteorite from Mars. The mineral found in a Martian rock discovered in Antarctica three years ago is considered a key part of the recipe for life. The team based at the NASA Astrobiology Institute at UH used an ion probe at the Keck Cosmochemistry Lab to analyze veins of Martian clay in the meteorite. After ruling out contamination from Earth, found higher concentrations of boron than found in any previously studied meteorite. Borate-enriched salt, sediment, and clay deposits are relatively common on Earth, but such deposits have never been previously found beyond our planet. The analysis suggests the material was concentrated on Mars at about the same time life was getting started on Earth. Team member James Stevenson said in a statement, Borates may have been important for the origin of life on Earth because they can stabilize ribose, a crucial component of RNA. In early life, RNA is thought to have been the informational precursor to DNA. The broader conclusion is that Earth and Mars used to have much more in common than they do today, including ample atmosphere and surface water. Further, the Mars, uh, the Mars clay is thought to be 700 million years old. Uh, as a result, it could give us a glimpse of our own planet's uh, history that was previously unmeasured. No clay that old can be found on Earth thanks to the constant surface transformations caused by plate tectonics. Now, you know, it's interesting that the boron, uh, you know, they found this on in Antarctica. And uh, usually they find these uh, sort of dark rocks on Antarctica because they stand out in all that white sure. uh, snow and, and, and ice. Uh, and it's interesting that I guess the, the chemical signature of these rocks uh, reveal that they're meteorites from Mars. Right, and they were comparing it also to another meteorite that landed in California mm -hmm. a few years ago. But it is interesting that you know we're talking, we've been talking a lot about the Mars Explorer and and what's happening on the planet right now. But here we're getting information about it from things that have come to our planet. Uh, I, I, it was definitely interesting because just a few months ago, there was another study that they had found evidence that there was not just water on Mars, but warm water on Mars. Mm -hmm. in, other, in other words, more uh, evidence that conditions would have been able to support life at some time in the past. So this just sort of adds to that. Yeah, and, and I'm kind of uh, curious to see when, let's say, Curiosity is going to detect boron on actually the, the Mars surface. I mean, that would make uh, this study, I think, uh, you know, more substantive. And I thought it was interesting that uh, in the release they noted that the scientist was sort of just curious about it mm -hmm. and was surprised that nobody had specifically looked for it before. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, thrilled that both of the sample and the equipment, the unique equipment at the Keck lab, was here at UH mm -hmm. so that they could get that done. In other astronomy news, a University of Hawaii researcher is part of a team that has made a bold proposal to build a massive telescope that could be the best instrument ever built to detect extraterrestrial life. The Colossus Telescope would have an aperture of 77 meters, dwarfing the planned 30-meter telescope in Hawaii and the 40-meter telescope planned for Chile, and its designers say it could be built in a mere five years. 
Colossus would cost an estimated $1 billion to build with the price kept down by thin mirror technology and limited reliance on large mirror segments. And the team is quick to point out that it's not going to compete with other telescopes for government funding, instead pursuing private sources. While the source for ex- search for extraterrestrial life has largely been through scanning the skies for alien signals, Colossus would look for specific heat signatures and would be it would be large enough to not only image a distant planet, but look for cities and other signs of intelligent life on its surface. The Colossus is largely theoretical with no location set, but its partners are no strangers to complex projects. In addition to the UH Institute for Astronomy, the team includes experts at universities in Japan, France, and Mexico. It is the brainchild of Kaisei Harlington, head of innovative optics and an amateur astronomer, and he's also enlisted the help of David Holliday, who played a role in building the Keck and Subaru telescopes here in Hawaii. Now, you know, when uh, we talk about uh, the search for extraterrestrial life and, and some of the methods that they might use uh, today, uh, there's this sort of ongoing discussion and fear that if, you know, they, the aliens who we're trying to detect see that we're or, or realize that we're trying to detect them, then that might have some dire consequences. Well, it was Carl Sagan who said, you know, trying to find them, you know, having contact with, we're very optimistic if we think that would all automatically be some sort of positive engagement, whereas they're like, what is that sound? Let's, it's annoying us. Let's go and snuff it out. <laughs> so, yes, this project is talking about being a passive way right. to scan without, you know, revealing our location to other civilizations. And they're talking about how they're, but it is very theoretical. I thought it was fascinating. They're even looking at the, the the theory of the Dyson sphere from the 1960s, where a really intelligent civilization would most likely encase their sun and capture all of the energy that they need, and so that this would be able to find that sort of artificial uh, restraint on sun's energy. Mm-hmm. And and you know uh, because of the size of this uh, array, they could actually image all the way to the surface of the planet. And of course, you know we've been reporting about exoplanets and all that, but you can't mm-hmm. really look at you know the heat signature of the planet. But with this kind of telescope, they might be able to get down to the surface as, as well as the atmosphere around that planet. Right. Well, they wouldn't specifically be, they wouldn't be able to see skyscrapers or the Great Wall of China, for example, but the assumption is that civilizations will cluster their heat mm-hmm. use so you can see some sort of uh, intelligent design there. Well, next up, El Nino, the uh, weather pattern that periodically develops in the southern Pacific Ocean, has been well documented over the last few decades. The oscillations of El Nino can bring flooding to one region and drought to another. But while it generally peaks around Christmas and fades by the spring, climate scientists weren't really sure why. But scientists from the Meteorology Department at UH Manoa and the International Pacific Research Center believe they have found an answer. Researchers announced last week that they've documented an unusual wind pattern that straddles the equatorial Pacific during strong El Nino events, swinging back and forth with a period of 15 months. Using atmospheric models, the team tracked the wind pattern to an interaction between El Nino and the seasonal shifts in temperatures in the western tropical Pacific. A high-pressure system hovers over the Philippines, and the major rain band shifts toward the equator. A 15-month period of the wind pattern is faster than the three- to five-year cycle estimated for El Nino events, but slower than the annual cycle. The data identifies a combination tone that could be used to better simulate the and predict El Nino conditions and impact. Uh, lead author Malti um, Stucker said in a statement, uh, 
Not all El Nino events are accompanied by this unusual wind pattern, but once El Nino conditions reach a certain threshold amplitude during the right time of the year, it's like a jack-in-a-box whose lid jumps open. Now, the idea of this sort of combination tone, now usually we think of um, El Nino as being sort of the warming of the Pacific Ocean mm. around that eastern side where, you know, where Mexico is. And depending on how long that warming lasts, uh, you could have an El Nino condition or El Nino um, uh, season, so to speak, if it's a longer uh, uh, lasting than, you know, let's say, uh, longer than eight months. Mm. Uh, but then I think what this story is also saying is that it's you know it's a combination of things, and with the combination of this wind pattern that they just recently detected, uh, two of those things really sort of amplify. Right, when they line up just right, right. and the idea of the combination tone, they cite uh, sort of the, uh, the the theory or not the theory, but the the phenomenon that when say a violin is playing two notes, your head or your ears mm-hmm. interprets actually a third note in the between, just mm-hmm. sort of created by that interaction, and so. Uh, without understanding this combination tone, this wind pattern that, that has the 15-year cycle, it was hard to create models to predict El Nino. But now that they kind of have how that one um, moves, mm-hmm. they'll be able to see, oh, this might line up in a different way on a certain year. Mm-hmm. So definitely interesting stuff. Well, on the broader technology stage, uh, Monday brought the launch of the annual Worldwide Developers Conference from Apple. Less than a month after Google's yearly event, the Cupertino company announced its latest products and services. In his second WWDC keynote, Apple CEO Tim Cook announced iOS 7, the next version of its mobile operating system for iPhones and iPads, and Mavericks, the next version of OS X for Mac computers. Other highlights include the introduction of iTunes Radio, a music streaming service to compete with the likes of Spotify and Pandora. Apple also updated its MacBook Air line of uh, laptops and a brand new Mac Pro machine for power users. Most of the attention was focused on iOS 7 in the wake of the October departure of former Apple Senior Vice President Scott Forstall and the promotion of designer Johnny Ive to lead both hardware and software design. In addition to new software features and a new look for its mobile devices, Apple showed off new desktop features from tabbed windows in the file system to file tagging. There were also updates to Apple Maps and to the Siri voice-controlled service, which will interestingly direct many queries to Microsoft's Bing search engine instead of Google. Apple will also update its iCloud offerings, including web-based versions of its iWork productivity apps. The conference runs through Friday, and while some offerings are available right now, most of the big updates will be available in the fall. Now, you know, I um, I was definitely enamored by the uh, iOS 7 uh, presentation, and I thought the it's uh, a, a nice new look. Of course, you know, a lot of the dialogue that's going on right now is that it looks like uh, what's already on Android and, and uh, let's say, Windows uh, devices. But now, you know, I, I was first thinking, well, what was it, what's it going to take to actually download? And it's not available now. It's actually de- available for developers. And, mm-hmm. and you're a, a, a sort of developer. I, and, I'm, a, I'm a wannabe pr- okay, developer. But, but I've, I've, done a Hello, I've done a Hello World app. So, yes, I downloaded okay. it. And that qualifies. The big risk that I took is I put it on the iPhone Production, I use every day. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually pretty good. I mean, I like it a lot. Um, it's fascinating, though. I mean, if there's anything that I think that Android users might have reached parity with Apple users is the percentage, there is a percentage of them that are insufferably smug online. Mm -hmm. Because I thoroughly agree that some of these design cues come from Android. Actually, some of the best of it's coming from WebOS, which never took off, even some Windows 8 cues. There's little pieces and bits and pieces from everywhere. And I think that that makes sense. Best practices are best practices. And if this arrangement makes sense, why not use it? Um, But even when I posted on, say, Google+, and I say in my 
review of it, yeah, it kind of looks like Android. People are just commenting, hundreds of comments, mm-hmm, mind you. Mm-hmm. It looks like Android. It looks like Android. It looks like Android. Um, but I think that they had to move in this direction. I think the overall design sense is looking flatter, cleaner, thinner fonts. I think some things are less readable, but that's sort of the way the design community moves. They move in a in a in a single direction, and iOS was starting to look old, but now, I like it. Uh, was there, is there something that uh, sort of stands out in your first take at uh, you know loading it up on your iPhone? Well, you know, there's a lot of eye candy. There's a lot of the things that Android users like to show off. What about that, that, parallax, uh, that parallax effect? Right, the 3D uh-huh. when you move the phone. That's kind of cool to show your friends, but it doesn't get your work done any faster. Um, but I do like the control panel and other tweaks like that. Notifications, better uh, better handling of notifications. I'll tell you that the design is they've put more space into it. Mm-hmm. So things have wider buffers around them. I'm personally more fond of I want things tiny and dense. I want to see 10 notifications on the screen. Well, you like the fire hose of information. Right. And so when the new notifications, you get maybe three of them on screen. So I'm like, I'm scrolling all the time. But it'll come in the fall. So uh, I'm anxious. I'm going to wait till it's, you know, like past beta and ready for production and I can just download it. Well, I should mention Microsoft Store is opening tomorrow at Ala Moana. And if you want to see their flat design, again, a lot of cues that you'll see, you can go down there and play with those as well. Okay. Well, finally, a couple of quick stories we wanted to share with you. High Technology uh, Development Corporation's Executive Director Yuka Nagashima, frequently frequent guest on this program, has resigned from her post as she prepares to join her husband in pursuing new opportunities in Denmark. The HTDC board accepted her resignation last week and named Senior Economic Development Manager Len Higashi as Acting Executive Director. Yuka's been a great voice in the community. It'll be uh, tough to to fill her shoes. Ahead on the tech calendar, ShakaCon 2013 is coming up. ShakaCon is an IT and security conference running from June 25th through 28th at the Neil Blaisdell Center. Sessions cover topics ranging from enterprise security, risk assessments, to testing Android and iOS apps. Visiting speakers will share their expertise on Microsoft platforms, open source projects, malware, and even social media. And for more information on that, you should visit ShakaCon.com. Org. And joining us in the studio is Pia Arma from High Beam to tell us about the upcoming Transitions and Growth Workshop. Welcome to the show, Pia. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, tell us a little bit about, uh, well, of course, we all know about High Beam. We've had uh, Bieling Chua on the show frequently, and uh, you know, it's always interesting about her projects and the company she takes to Asia and all this. Now, the uh, so High Beam is now planning this, this Transitions and Growth Workshop. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's actually a two-part workshop. Uh, we're taking advantage of one of our Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, investors, and, and management experts. Mm-hmm. She is a director on High Beam, Deborah Barasini. And she's the first workshop is on, they're both on June 18th. Um, 9 to 11 is the first one. It's, it's growth strategies. What do you do? How do you grow? Mm-hmm. And every company needs to know how to do that. So we're going to interview first uh, Anton Krucki from Tissue Genesis, who has tons mm-hmm. of experience. Mm-hmm. We will also have Carnet Williams, who you probably have talked to mm-hmm. in, in the past, uh, founder of Sprout. We and talked to his partner uh, last week, uh, Kevin Hughes. Yes, okay, yeah. absolutely. And Greg Nasky, who is an attorney who has tons of expertise also in mergers and acquisitions. The second session is actually more designed for scientists and researchers and technologists. That's more about tech transfer. Mm-hmm. And so we'll start that one with a one-on-one interview with Barry Weinman, who is an experienced venture capitalist and can tell us a lot about successful and unsuccessful tech um, transfer opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, then we'll also have Will Alameda, who you've probably also talked to several times, used to be with STI, now is with uh, Kineticore, and an experienced technology entrepreneur. 
will also, Anton Krucki will also be on that panel, Mm -hmm. as will Shannon Pierce, who is an attorney uh, with Goodsell who has an experience in tech transfer. With tech transfer, one of the things that Deborah is definitely going to be talking about is the fact that when you first start to look at your technology, um, before you really pursue it, think about whether or not do you have any, do you have the, is it open IP? Can you actually work on it? Uh, is it valuable to a consumer anywhere down the line, or is it just something you like? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so you really have to think about some of these questions before you start. Um, Deborah's very experienced. I think it'll be really good good workshops. It's now, Highbeam's been focused on the entrepreneurial space and, and uh, the startup space for years and years and years, and of course it waxes and wanes. On our show, we've been documenting and following a lot of the recent activities with new accelerators and, and much many more startups, and I, I would say a lot more optimism in the local space for that. So from the Highbeam perspective, how do you see you fitting into um, this, again, growing and broadening conversation about these activities in the state? Well, I think it's really interesting. Highbeam was founded in 2000 and before before Hawaii really had any type of infrastructure whatsoever. And so it's been helping build that. And we're thrilled to see the growth in that in that arena. So now you have, for example, Blue Startups, which is basically a, an idea, proof of concept type of, of situation. And you have Highbeam, who is also ready to take the next step, mm-hmm. right? And so we're trying to build, I think, in this community a continuum of services, so you you get you help people from their idea stage, getting them into a place where they can develop further. Then you you help them along with things like growth and transition. How do you do tech transfer? How do you get more money? Um, we have angels here. We have a little bit of mezzanine, but we really actually we don't have a lot of mezzanine capital. We need to get there mm-hmm. because then you can actually go to you know somewhere else and get you know the the real VC money and whatever. So if you in, in so you're saying that the mezzanine isn't here, but the the venture is here. No, I'm okay. saying okay. that angel money is here. Um, so we have the we have early some, building blocks, but we're still we need to build that broader ecosystem. We right. need more capital, most definitely, but we've certainly done an amazing job in building the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot to do, but um, for, uh, certainly the state is helping a lot, putting money into that in, into that system. And we have uh, entrepreneurs such as uh, Hank Rogers, who's doing his share right, as well right. by investing in, in, for example, in the in the blue startups. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we'll have blue startups as our, our guests, uh, their latest cohort next week. Um, who's the ideal candidate to attend this? I mean, what? Who are the people that you think would benefit most from what you're putting out there? Well, the first workshop in the morning from nine to eleven. Uh, by the way, it's at the Sullivan. Uh, Conference Center. This is we're co-sponsoring this with the UH Cancer Center. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that's more for the management. That's for the the management team. How do I how do I build this? How do I analyze my customers? How do I know what about customer acquisition? What about the com- competitive landscape? This is this is these are really building blocks mm-hmm. for almost any company, right? You have to ask these questions. Where do I go from here? How do I how do I do this? The second one is more for your scientist, your researcher, your technologist. Mm. Mm-hmm. We're really talking more on the tech transfer arena. And the experts are really on both. Uh, these are smaller panels so that there will be more opportunity to really talk to individuals and, and, and um, ask questions. Um, the one-on-one interviews, I think, are going to be extremely interesting because the people are. And the experience is mm-hmm. amazing. And so many entrepreneurs, that's the first thing you need to to do is to listen to other people. So real quickly, uh, um, give us the details, where, when, and how much. 
okay, it's $25 for each session. Uh-huh. There will be some breakfast and some, you know, refreshments. Good. So no one's going to starve. Mm-hmm. It's going to be at the Sullivan um, Conference Center at the UH Cancer Center, which is at uh, 701 E. Ilalo Street, I think. Yeah, um, anyway, we all know where yeah. it is, yes. right? Okay. <laughs> <Bar-Mitsky>, yeah. <laughs> right, and you can register at highbeam.org. Fantastic. So we want to thank you, Pia, for joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure and, listening to you all. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Carl Bonham and Ben Trevino of the UH Economic Research Organization to talk about the new UHERO dashboard project. How can this data be used for actionable programs, and what is it already starting to teach us? We'd, of course, love your questions as part of the conversation as well, so please don't hesitate to call 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, you can also tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. The economy needs consumers to spend more, but a lot of new jobs in that economy are part-time and temporary and low-wage. So ask yourself this, what kind of consumers does that produce? Thinking about making any long-term plans, it's really impossible. I'm Kai Rizdal. Our series Consumed continues. How we consume and what it gets us. That and the numbers from Wall Street as well next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bitemark's Cafe. On the next Echoes, Tina Malia embraces electronic music. I thought it was evil. And then one day I was at this festival and I heard electronic music and I just couldn't help myself. It was so beautiful and I fell in love with it. I'm John DiLibretto. Tina Malia talks about her new dream pop direction on Echoes, a music soundscape from PRI, Public Radio International. Tonight at 10... Welcome back to Bike Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lom. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining to us today is Carl Bonham and Ben Trevino from You Hero. Carl is the executive director of the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization and a professor of economics. Ben is the database analysis at You Hero and does research in infographics and information design. And how can the community benefit from the work that You Hero produces? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Carl and Ben, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, you know, we um, we often hear about uh, You Hero and, and, and the, um, the reports that You Hero produces and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear the official story about what is the mission in life for you here. And Carl, I think you're the right person to answer that. So the mission is is really just to do research, economic research and analysis on uh, some of the important issues that are facing Hawaii and to communicate the results of that research as broadly as possible so we can inform people who are facing these decisions on a daily basis, whether it's running your business, uh, making a decision down at the legislature or at, at you know, a county council, mm-hmm. um, or you're just interested. And so it, it's really to try and provide Hawaii with information about the economy, about the environment, about social issues, uh, labor market issues, everything that matters in our lives. Mm-hmm. So y- this is uh, something that you had actually helped start back in uh, 97. That's right. What was, uh, what was it back then that really kind of got you thinking that we need to have this kind of uh, facility and, and capability? 
Actually, it's just I needed another job. Well, you no. know, that's a good reason. <laughs> it works. <laughs> so, you know, back in 97, if you look back, um, we had kind of come through or we were really in the middle of, of a really horrible economic period in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of almost had a lost decade in Hawaii, not quite, not quite as bad as Japan's. but And right in the middle of that, um, you know, First Hawaiian Bank shut down their research division. Bank of Hawaii shut down their research division. Uh, and we were already doing some forecast work. Myself, Dr. Gangness, uh, Dr. Conan, who's now the uh, dean of the College of Social Sciences, we were doing research uh, for the state in some cases. We were doing uh, research on forecasting, and it was something that we just enjoyed doing, mm-hmm. right? It was mm-hmm. part of our, I mean, my part of my academic research, a big chunk of my academic research is about forecasting and, and sort of trying to understand how forecasters prepare their analysis and, and how they get things wrong and how they get them right. And so it was kind of a natural that there seems there seemed to be a void in Hawaii, a need for uh, a consistent set of analysis to help inform decision makers. Uh, and the other factor was that uh, we needed to bring in some resources at the university uh, to help fund graduate students. At the time, East West Center was cutting back on their funding mm-hmm. for grad students, uh, and the economics department at UH had benefited tremendously from a steady stream of grad students that were funded by the East West Center. Mm-hmm. So we're doing this research that can could be funded, and... Uh, and now, and the results of this is Uhiro has about uh, anywhere between six and nine full-time graduate assistants working for us pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. And at times we have two or three undergraduate students. So there was a whole bunch of things that came together. Mm-hmm. Well, Carl, it's great to hear of the origins of Uhiro. Ben, um, I'm kind of curious in part how you came to the organization, but also when you talk about doing analysis, it all comes down to the information you're basing your analysis on. And in addition to how you came to Uhiro, can you tell us where the sources of the data are for your research? So I started at Uhiro, I want to say in 2010, but but I think my first brush with it was a couple of years prior when uh, Uhiro had posted an ad for, for a like a data analyst. And I, I thought at the time that this was something, you know, as a technologist, somebody who works with data databases, I was like, oh, this sounds like a great position, something that I'm totally qualified for. And it turned <laughs> out that, that it was absolutely not something I was qualified for. And, and they were, in fact, looking for somebody with an economics degree, a PhD, or at least a master's, uh, and somebody who is a subject area expert on the types of data that get collected. So this is the kind of person who knows uh, the surveys, where the data comes from, how it's collected, and all this information is very important for for doing analysis. And and even still, while that's something that I'm learning a bit on the fly, we it's it's not my area of expertise. And and most of what I do is still on the technological side, and then to some degree now because of the visualization work on the on the communication side. Mm-hmm. So that was in 2008. I, I remember having a conversation with Carl saying like I was interested in this job. But I I had actually just taken another job, but but I really liked the work that Uhiro did. I I'm a like amateur aspiring economist. I like to say, uh, even though I have no no <laughs> training at issue, and it's it's readily apparent to everyone that you hear. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to say it on the radio. Yeah, but. sorry. <laughs> Never take that back. But <laughs> but um, so we talked about it, and and I had mentioned I wanted to stay involved if there were any projects I could work on, and so we we collaborated on a few things that were involved uh, with you heroes systems, uh, keeping track of some of the things that that you hero needed to keep track of, and then. Uh, when the time came, Carl, you know, we we worked on something to try to carve out a position where I could uh, make some contributions and do something on a more regular basis. And 
uh, we basically came up with we wanted to do a better job of uh, basically rewrite all of the data collection systems, which had been previously written by graduate students and were uh, a pretty uh, rope. I don't I don't know if I want to say robust, but they were a very uh, comprehensive set of Perl scripts that did a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I came in and wanted to consolidate them uh, and sort of centralize the management of this data. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Ryan, you were asking what sources of the data are. We, mm-hmm. we bring in things. Uh, the vast majority of it comes from either the Bureau of Economic Analysis or the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which both have pretty decent uh, APIs for pulling data down. And they're, they're national statistical agencies that, that do reporting. Uh, and then we also get a lot of local data. So Hawaii Tourism Authority is another big source of, of information that's very important to the forecast. Mm-hmm. And uh, that data is can be more challenging to bring in. But uh, that's one of the things that I think I was brought in to address was how can we make these systems uh, more robust to the kinds of concerns we have with, with importing local data. And, and can you tell us a little bit of why maybe that data is a bit more challenging to bring in? I think a, a lot of it is is that it's made... Uh, it's made with a different intent than we need it. So uh, you hear looks at things as time series, right? That the time dimension of data is very important to the kinds of work that that gets done for forecasting. And so to construct a time series, uh, you have to be observing the data over time, and you're looking at several things. Um, and a lot of the data is presented as a snapshot. If you wanted to see at any given time. Uh, what's the visitor mix coming into Hawaii? Mm-hmm. You might want to know that that the percentage of visitors from Japan is twenty percent, or you know something like that. Uh, and that that information doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself to time series because you're getting these snapshots. Uh, so what we have to do is construct a time series from these snapshots. And when the when the snapshots are released, the the format of the data may change mm-hmm. from one snapshot mm-hmm. to the next. Mm-hmm. And so for a computer to try to figure that out. Uh, can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were reading it as a human, you may not see it as a challenge. You you look at an annotation, you figure it out, you can put the pieces together, but a computer expects to be, you know, expects that data to be in the same place and and it's just not really set up for a time series. So so Carl, you know, having started the organization back in ninety seven and looking at some of these data sources, uh, you know, that's kind of going on fifteen some odd years right now. So I'm sure that you've had conversations with the the tourism authority and, and talked about data and the snapshot uh, that they might be giving. I'm, I'm sure that they probably gave it to you in PDF form. But, you know, somewhere along the line, I mean, the the light bulb must have gone off for, for somebody that, that says, well, if I'm giving them a snapshot, maybe I can give them a snapshot in more frequent, you know, sort of intervals and give it to you in a, in a somewhat more regular formatted and standard formatted basis. Um, but if that hasn't happened, why do you think that hasn't happened yet? Well, I think Ben hit the nail on the head when he said that you know they're they really have a different purpose in terms of presenting the information. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's it's sort of not in their mission statement to provide your hero with the easiest uh, access to to data. Um, they're really about producing reports that sort of are are pleasing to the eye and convey a particular piece of information. We, we, we've absolutely had these questions, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. had these uh, discussions. And the other thing that came to my mind is when Ben talked about these nice APIs that are available at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Bureau of Economic Analysis, those didn't always exist. So mm. back when, you know, when we had, so when we started, it was, uh, you know, Byron Gangness, myself doing the forecast work. And, and this was while we were doing full-time professor stuff. 
um, you know, we were doing this on nights and weekends, and we had, you know, one grad student who was going out and trying to scrape this information. And so the, the it was really about doing scraping from mm. all kinds of different formats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's gotten much, much better. Um, in fact, when we first started collecting the visitor data, it was all being originated by DBAD, and we were literally scraping it out of web web pages. It wasn't even in a PDF or mm-hmm, in a text mm-hmm. file. Or, and those web pages were probably exported from Microsoft Word. And the, <laughs> yeah, and, and the formatting would change right. very regularly. And so it, yeah, there's a lot of lot of challenges there in collecting the information. We're talking to Carl Bonham and Ben Trevino from the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, or UHERO, and we will get to their new data dashboard in a minute. But if you've got a question for this uh, organization that does analysis for economics here in Hawaii, we would welcome your call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We are also listening on Twitter, and we have a question from Forrest here in Honolulu who says, can you ask the Uhiro gang to tell a success story of how their data collection has helped business in Hawaii? So, Carl, I'm going to put that one to you. When you put out these reports and when you have this dashboard, um, what is an example of uh, it informing good decision-making for Hawaii businesses? Well, I'm not sure I can tell a sort of a specific story about a a business success. I I do know from talking directly to business users who who use our data, some of them use it very intensively. Um, HPM Building Supply is an example over in Hilo. And they take our forecast reports, pull all the data, put it into their planning spreadsheets. And and we don't actually do a construction forecast for the Big Island. We do a construction forecast for the state. They take our state construction forecast along with the other information we provide them for the Big Island and other information they collect, put it all into a into a spreadsheet, and then do their own planning forecast using that information. So they build their own Big Island forecast off of our state forecast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we do know from, from conversations and from surveys that we've done that businesses are using the information for their planning purposes. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, uh, you, you were talking about how some of the agencies that you've talked to don't see it in their sort of mission to give you data in a format that that you would like it. But I think, you know, of course, you have a mission and you want it to uh, try to get the reports out, get people sort of knowledgeable about what's happening with the economy, which I think, you know, is important. What do you think it takes to actually convince them that it is an important thing to consider sort of the standardization of data and and how, you know, you as your hero might want to receive it? I don't think they necessarily don't think – it's not that they think that's not important, uh, but – you know, everybody's understaffed, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. busy, and, you know, and they have to tackle things sort of one at a time. And I know most, uh, well, many of the state agencies that I've dealt with don't necessarily have somebody with Ben's skill set to... I know Ben is one of a kind. ...to help with these things. And, um, you know, there's many, we were talking earlier about there, many of them are still working in spreadsheets. They don't even, they don't have a centralized database. Uh, or you know they're using a, pr- a software program that's you know ser- seriously out of date and not up to up to speed in terms mm-hmm. of the capabilities of the things we're working with. So uh, you know, in terms of uh, I guess these kinds of reports that uh, you send out, I mean, who do you who do you think are the the most uh, uh, benefit from I mean, benef- benefiting <laughs> from it? And then you know, I, I think you also mentioned that you know the banks. 
had realized during that economic downturn that the, you know they needed to close down some of their research uh, facilities or research um, groups. Have they restarted any of that, or has has any of the other organizations sort of picked it up now that we're in you know 2013? Or is UHERO kind of the de facto organization that gives out uh, uh, sort of economic reports? Well, so DBED has, the Department of Business, Economic Development, Tourism has always uh, done some, has done a significant amount of economic analysis and reporting uh, and forecast reporting. And they continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Eugene Tian is the director of research there, and they do some, some very important work. Uh, it's, it's nice to have multiple views. Right, and, and some of our uh, our sponsors and our clients tell us that they they want to have another view. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't just want the view from DBED, or in the past they didn't just want the view from DBED or from say uh, Paul Rubaker at the Bank of Hawaii. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, and I think that's a good thing, right? It's it provides multiple multiple inputs. Uh, the banks do not are not doing any. They don't have any economic research going on. Uh, you know, Dr. Laney left First Hawaiian back in '97. Um, so we basically it's Uhiro, it's DBED, and Paul Brubaker is is running TZ Economics. He's doing uh, consulting work, and so there are still sources uh, in there's still roughly three sources in mm-hmm. Hawaii mm-hmm. for uh, for some economic analysis. Are the news agencies sort of picking up your your reports and and uh... yes, yeah. I mean we do so, but then that's that's part of our mission is to go out and communicate. So I've been in this room many many mornings with Beth Ann. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we did a I think we were on KITV for almost three years. Mm-hmm. We did a, a Friday morning show there. Uh, so you know, we we push our reports out to the news agencies. And we're actively trying to get the information into the hands of the public. Um, we do provide a certain amount of extra information, if you will, to our subscribers and our sponsors because we somehow whether we've got to be able to pay the grad students. Well, that's what I was about mm-hmm. to ask you. I mean, we've we've covered some of your reports in the past. The one about the uh, the refinery, for example, and its pos- its impact, and perhaps not as great as as some might have presumed. But how? Do you make a living? How do you sustain this effort? Maybe Paul Brubaker goes and gives speeches, and he he has an expertise and analysis that a specific client can hire him for. But how does Uhiro sustain itself? So, so Uhiro is a, I think it's a good example of sort of a public-private partnership because the university does support our salaries. Not all of us, uh, but they support. We have several. Uh, I think we are up to three and a half FTE for faculty. Okay. Uh, all of our grad students, uh, which comes out to maybe three or four FTE, um, that's full-time equivalent mm-hmm. translation, uh, all of them are paid by soft money. So so basically, we have about half of our budget is from the state, and about half of it comes from grants. So everything from National Science Foundation grants to uh, USGS grants, uh, contracts, so we we contract with some companies to do long range forecasting for them, um, and we have a subscription service for our forecast reports, and we have sponsorships. So we have a a large number of local firms that have uh, not only received more benefits in the form of more more detailed forecast reports, uh, also free cons- you know consultations mm-hmm. with us, uh, and they also are supporting our our effort to educate students and to provide this information to the public. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I do want to ask a couple of questions, but I think this is probably a good time to uh, take a short little break. We'll be right back. Right back. <laughs> we'll be back right after this short break to continue our conversation with Carl Bonham and Ben Trevino from the UH Economic Research Organization. And we'll get into the new UHERO dashboard. How has this data helped shape government policy or perhaps the local tech industry? We'd, of course, love to hear your questions as well. Call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Town Square goes back to the movies at the Maui Film Festival. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich, and we'll talk with five filmmakers whose documentaries chronicle stories with political overtones and public policy impact. Join us Thursday at 5 on Town Square. I have got you under my skin. Be sure to tune in on Sunday at 5 for Sinatra, the man in the music. On our next show, Sinatra joins Count Basie and Quincy Jones in the studio and records songs for his reprise album, It Might As Well Be Swing. I'm Guy Steele, inviting you to join me for Sinatra, the man in the music, Sunday at 5 on Hawaii Public Radio. Welcome back. This is Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Carl Bonham and Ben Trevino about the UHERO dashboard. And how can the public participate in this dashboard project? And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands. You can call 877-941-3689. Now, before we get into that, I wanted to ask this question. And, the um, you know, there's a lot of things that impact Hawaii and whether it's uh, agriculture or defense or energy, I mean, all of these things have some impact. And I'm, I'm curious, Carl, how deep do you go into any of those particular sectors? So it depends on what the purpose of the analysis is, right? The question, what's the question that's being that's driving the analysis? And uh, in our in our forecast work, we we don't go as deep as some people might think, uh, beca- primarily because the deeper we go the bigger the model gets, right? So we're, we're modeling using statistical relationships um, about 15 or 20 different sectors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if I drill deeper down into each of those sectors, the model just keeps growing and growing and growing, and it's just a, it's more work to maintain and you know, more work to produce the forecasts. Uh, but if we were, you know, if we're doing a specific analysis, say, about ag, uh, we can go much deeper. You can, and actually, the the dashboard uh, we put out a, a a chart, I think yesterday, I believe, on occupations. And uh, with with that kind of data, the data on occupations, you can drill down, you know, all the way to the guy sharpening the pencils. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But not all, you know, the the data. We, the other thing is when we're doing forecasting, we need long spans of data because we've got to establish right. statistical right. relationships. And we can't do that with two data points, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can draw a line between them, but um, <laughs> and and so the, the nature of the data drive. So, like census data, you can drill down very deeply, right? But it's tough to use that in a 
forecasting model like the ones we use. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Carl Bonham and Ben Trevino about UHERO and the UHERO dashboard. And if you've got a question, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. But we've actually also got another Twitter question. This from from Ethan. Uh, well, familiar Ethan there. And he's asking... Uh, Perhaps in relation to your uh, mentioning, Carl, about getting the word out and people understanding what you're doing and, and, and finding value in it, how has UHERO been able to use and benefit from social media, either in reporting and feedback? I might even add research into that. Um, ben, I'll throw that one to you. Well, so it's you said this question came in on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it's funny you mentioned Twitter because we've, we've been having an issue. We've wanted to start a Twitter account, and uh, the only reason we have it is that at UHERO is taken by somebody in Russia who is just sitting on the account and I and I really can't bring myself to start another account knowing that at you heroes there unused. Uh so we've been we've been uh held back on the Twitter front. But uh, at the same time we've been trying to make a lot of progress on Facebook. Hmm. And so Facebook's been our primary vehicle for for reaching the social media audience. Uh and it, we do some stuff on our website, on the blog and we have an email list, but I think as of maybe starting this year we really made a big push on Facebook to uh, to use that as our main communication vehicle uh, for widespread types of things. Now, you know, in terms of uh, somebody squatting on UHERO, uh, you know, I don't know how what the likelihood of your actually getting. No, there's that, a process for it. Have you initiated it? Well, so we looked into it. There's a you you need to be able to make a trademark claim on the name, which which I don't think we can. Uh, and I've sent the I I ran a, a very polite request through Google Translate and uh, <laughs> tweeted it at him, and I haven't heard back. So we we don't know. We actually have one of our economists is a, a native Russian speaker, so I may consult with her. So soon. are we following him? Uh, or I am. her. Uh, I, yeah, I'm but uh, you know, I I kind of um, I don't know if I if my <laughs> advice is any of any worth, but uh, I think you know it'd probably be a good idea to get something started just mm-hmm. so that you can yeah. sort of build the the community and you know the sort of. Uh, uh, just the audience that would be interested in this as opposed to, you know, because this process might take a while. Right. I think you're right. I mean, I think we need to do it. And, and in fact, we've, we have reserved, I think, You Hero Tweets uh, as, <laughs> as something to, to potentially start up. Well, on. it sounds like, you know, if you're, when you're looking at something like as broad as the economy, you need, you know, specific and credible and, and long-ter- long-term sources like government data and such. Um, but we've also been doing shows and we've also talked a lot about these uses of social media being sources of data in and of themselves, a, a way to evaluate a level of activity. I'm not sure if there's a way to make that into an economic analysis, but is that something that uh, you're looking at, the, uh, the online source? Yeah. Uh, so- not necessarily social media. I mean, we're, Ben is using that as inputs into the dashboard, um, but related to the, this question is things like using Google Trends data mm-hmm. uh, to. So we actually w- began working on a project uh, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, trying to use Google Trends data on people's searching for Hawaii vacation, for yeah, example, yeah. and we've we've. I've worked with Peter Falecki, uh, a faculty member with UHERO, on what are called mixed-frequency forecasting models where you, you're able to take very high-frequency data, whether it's uh, daily or tick-by-tick or tick data, and incorporate that into a, into a statistical forecasting model for something where your target, your, what you're interested in is, say, monthly home sales or mm. monthly visitor counts. 
and yet you're able to use this high-frequency data and extract the signal, hopefully, from it mm -hmm. to get a prediction of what's happening sort of in real time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you know, we've kind of uh, hinted at this dashboard project, and uh, I'm, I'm sure our, our listeners are thinking, when are you guys going to get to what the dashboard project is? So, uh, Ben, can you tell us a little bit about the dashboard project? Okay, so so I mentioned we we've been making a push on on Facebook, and so we were we were thinking earlier this year, you know, what what is something that we could do to engage the community, something that people will understand, and and we'll take the research and data that we look at and make it something that's compelling that they would want to comment on or share. And um, what we came up with is we think that you know uh, visualizations are are commonly becoming your sort of web your standard web link bait you know like mm -hmm. something you put <laughs> link online bait. it's it's you know that people will will react to it right and and we think that that it's uh it makes a lot of sense for us as as our content driven strategy to mm -hmm. use these visualizations because we work with so much data uh and there and we recognize that there are a lot of stories in there to tell and so the the dashboard project is a way of using social media to release these uh pieces of a forthcoming dashboard one at a time uh, and examine different parts of the of the economy, the economic data, uh, piecemeal, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and invite commentary uh, and feedback from the community at the same time. Because ultimately, you know, the the data points are describing phenomena that happen in the real world. They're right. they're they're, you know, maybe they represent people, maybe they represent buying behavior. But uh, this conversation is actually very valuable because it tells us a little bit about what people are thinking and and gives us more insight into why data might look a certain way, right? If somebody reacts to something that we publish and they see something in it that maybe we didn't think of, that's that's useful for us to, to know so that we can look into. Well, I can certainly see sort of the viral attempt there that you can, if you can if you can summarize it in a visual image that it's more likely to be shared. It's it's a visual future on the web. Um, but also, you know, I read your report, uh, the UHERO report on the refinery and the local petroleum environment, and it was a very informative report, but your average resident will probably not sit down and read that. But if they do see a graph or a pie chart or something um, eye-catching that can summarize a nugget there, that will definitely resonate with them. Um, the one that I remember, speaking of Facebook, that I caught was a dashboard segment that focused on jobs by sector and um, I think it was income or pay. Can you describe, for example, what that dashboard piece looks like? Right. So that that was, I think, the first thing we released was uh, a it's a visualization style called a tree map, and uh, what a tree map does is it it breaks down uh, a space into proportional pieces, so you can see the uh, all the parts of the whole. And in this case, we took the entire set of non-farm jobs in Hawaii uh, and broke it down by sector. So uh, an example of sector would be uh, federal government, and you mm -hmm. know how many federal government jobs there are. And uh, one nice thing about the tree map style is that because you have these segments, you can you can encode more information in there, say, uh, using colors. And you can very easily see, using differences in colors, how uh, you know some other dimension of the data, in this case, we used pay. Uh, so we showed uh, a range of colors where darker colors uh, mapped to higher average pay across that given sector. And so you could easily pick out, um, using, using your, your visual sense, uh, what might be something that's interesting to look at? Yeah, I remember commenting on that uh, that uh, visual that uh, my pay category would probably be like a, just a white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be dark at all. Just white. Now, one of the things that that came as a result of that question or that uh, that graphic was 
the actual, a little bit more detail on the categories? Because I think a lot of the people that were on Facebook are probably involved with some element of the, the, the tech industry. And, and, and I think that there were a couple of categories that, that tech could have been perhaps uh, a, a part of, but it wasn't clear how you, you, you might have categorized uh, technology. I know there was like an information category and, and, and some others. Well, it it was a those questions were great, and actually, I think that's part of uh, another part of the mission of the the dashboard project is to sort of bring up what are the issues in classifying certain things, right? And so, in this case, uh, the, the divisions by sectors are somewhat different from uh, divisions by occupation, and I think a lot of people were were interested in where they fit in in terms of their own personal occupation, mm-hmm. and that occupation may not map to a, a sector in the way that you would expect. And so, a tech worker who works for the federal government wouldn't be wouldn't be considered a there's no sector for tech but there is an occupational classification mm-hmm. and in a later in a later graphic one that we intend to release we're going to do a uh, deeper exploration into those occupations and then i think people will then start to be able to see by comparing sectors and occupations how uh, you can sort of triangulate a position as opposed to just uh pick one thing and and have that be where you figure it out cuz it's it's people and and you know there it's just a multidimensional world. And, and I think that's one of the things that's hardest to grasp when you approach um, economic data. And that's something that we, we hope to do. Uh, Ryan was, is, was indicating earlier that for something like the Tesoro story, it's hard for a layperson to maybe approach it and understand what's coming up. And, and I think one of the functions of the dashboard is to, to do what I think of as priming. You know, it, it primes people by introducing them to the issues so that they, they new questions pop into their heads. And by asking those questions, we can figure out what we should be addressing, uh, what we can make clearer, and uh, and then also now they, now people have learned a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Now you know in terms of uh, the ability to communicate what you're producing on this dashboard is is Facebook the primary vehicle by which you want to get the word out or get the you know get the samples of of what you're creating in terms of these reports. Well, in in this case, we found it to be very effective uh, because of the the viral effect and the ability to share. Uh, ultimately. And to address sort of what you were asking about earlier, which is drilling down into sectors to find some more detail, I think we we would have more luck with an interactive version of the dashboard. Mm-hmm. And we want to get that to we want to get it to that point so that we have a, an interactive dashboard where where someone can uh, do some exploration and discovery. And uh, but I think we're finding Facebook is is even more powerful than maybe we expected, and we're having uh, better results than when we we set out to do this. Uh, and I, I think. Are, are thinking about it is shifting a little bit in terms of how much we should continue to use Facebook and how we can combine those two things. Hmm. Well, one of the things that I, that, I, that I guess you're answering in a way is um, I've seen a lot of your design work and your visualizations of, say, the city budget and something that's live and it pulls the data here and it just updates automatically and a lot of colors and swoopy things. And yeah, I admit, I'm a, definitely a sucker for eye candy. Um, but Right now, you're saying that the dashboard is meticulously designed um, to to make that impact, but it's not quite at the point where you're going to be uh, redrawing it as soon as the Department of Taxation releases a new spreadsheet. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 furthermore, it doesn't. It also doesn't afford you the ability to to drill down and and get into those really high levels of detail or, or ask the next question yourself. You know, right now that the mode is, you can ask us on Facebook, and then we'll look up the next thing, or or we'll we'll give you an answer, but. It's possible, you know, and with some of our other tools, actually, that we currently have online with the UHERO data portal, uh, you could ask those questions of the data. 
and find out. And and then now that opens up even more possibilities. And so we we'd like to get it to that point where where we can provide the appropriate introductions uh, and then let people kind of explore on their own. Carl, can I ask though? I mean, right now your your primary audience was specialized people or government or um, economists or banks or people in industry, and now you're fielding questions from regular people from random residents or perhaps even visitors curious about Hawaii. Is that, um, how is that shifting or would that shift uh, the scope of the things that you look at at Uhira? You know, I think, uh, actually Ben and I were talking about this before the show, The what's happening with the dashboard and with social media is I, I think we're just reaching a, a little bit different audience, as, as you point out. I mean, in the, in the past, we've used traditional media, such as HPR, mm-hmm. PBS, the, the newspapers, mm-hmm. Pacific Business News, uh, the TV stations, and and we've reached out to the you know typical people, average uh, Hawaii households and and consumers, and and sometimes we've asked you know we've been, been able to answer questions on on the air, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just another way of doing it. It's a little bit dim- different demographic, right? Where you know the audience that we have here is a little bit younger because they're all of Ben's friends. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Yes, <laughs> uh, but but it is it, it. I think it causes us to think a little bit more deeply um, about the kinds of questions we can we can address. So you know, in this sort of move to gain a better understanding of your let's say community, was there was there something that drove you toward that direction? I mean, I know you you started off the conversation by saying you know we got to get the word out, we want to do more outreach. Uh, what was it that sort of now changed it so that? You know, you're engaging Facebook, you're engaging social media, you're actually reaching out to the common, you know, the common man. Uh, is that in your sort of wheelhouse of, of activities? You know, we made the, the decision to move, to begin to try and push material out on Facebook primarily uh, from the viewpoint that it was going to allow us to reach mm, right. more people. Mm-hmm. It was, it's really just, an, it's just a way to try and fulfill part of our mission to inform more people, to reach more people. And, you know, I, I get a lot of my news on Facebook now. Uh, you know, I don't, I mean, sure. I still read the newspaper, but mm-hmm. um, I'm also, you know, it's not uncommon for me to, to see Howard Dykus say something on Facebook. And I said, oh, the visitor data just came out. Right, I should go right. take a look at it. And so I, I think this is just part of the same mission. Okay. So, Ben, where can someone see either your work? Uh, well, where, where can they find the dashboard? They can go to our Facebook site, which mm-hmm. is facebook.com slash uhero.forum, uh, or just do a search for uh, our website, www.uhero.hawaii.edu, uh, and there's a link to our Facebook site there. Sounds good. And Fantastic. I also want to add that uh, we're going to be also talking to uh, both of you uh, next week, Wednesday, uh, after the show over at the R&D. And if you want to see or register or get more information, you can go to bit.ly bit.ly slash uhero and you get more information about that the little meetup Carl Bonham and is the executive director and Ben Trevino is the database analyst over at uhero we want to thank you both for joining us today always a pleasure thanks a lot and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe join us next week when we'll talk to companies from Blue Startups First Accelerator Cohort and if you miss any part of this edition you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org 
And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a New York duo called Ratatat and a song called Lapland. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.